1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times.
2: And I'm Greg Kott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome folk punk singer Ani DeFranco for a conversation and acoustic performance. And later on, we'll review Bob Dylan's new holiday release, and it'll be Greg's turn to add a quarter to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Yes, Mr. Cott, somebody is watching you. That song creeps me out. Even creepier, though, is the notion that many people in uh, many different segments of society would like government to keep a much closer watch on everything you, I, and everyone else does on the net. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this was a central theme of the big Future of Music Policy Summit in Washington, D.C., which you covered for the
2: paper. Indeed, Jim, it was. And I think this whole issue of net neutrality, people have probably heard that term bandied around a little bit. What it basically means is it's the principle that keeps the net equally accessible to all users. There are some forces out there, uh, big corporations, for example, that would like a tiered system of access. In other words, if the more you can pay, the cleaner and quicker pipeline you have to accessing the net and getting out to your users. A couple of speakers, prominent speakers, at the Future of Music Policy Summit addressing this issue. And I think it really gave me chills, actually, to hear them Mm. speak, because I was wondering, even though they came out strongly in favor of net neutrality, there was a Part B to both of their speeches that gave me pause. As I said, prominent speaker, Senator Al Franken, the newly elected uh, senator from Minnesota, speaking on behalf of net neutrality and a very powerful... Inside player in Washington, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Julius Janikowski, coming out strongly in favor of net neutrality as well. But both Franken and Janikowski both said while they're in favor of this democratic principle that the Internet should be equally accessible to everybody, they both said that the enforcement of copyright and laws of network openness can and must coexist. Now, it's interesting. I think everybody agrees, hey, artists need to get paid for the music they make. However, Is the idea that anybody can access the net compatible with the idea of tracking down Somebody who is, quote-unquote, illegally trading music files on the Internet. Well, it's fascinating to me that Franken played a role in
1: that because, of course, he he was a comedian and a writer and a broadcaster. He's someone whose old videos, as Stuart Smalley on on, uh, Mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live, may be all over YouTube, right? He's written books. Rush Limbaugh's a big fat liar. So he owns copyrights, and maybe he's... That gives some sensitivity about about artists
2: getting yeah. paid. Yeah, I mean, Franken actually brought that up in his speech and said, you know, I'm an artist too. I want to get paid. The problem here is that it's very difficult in the peer-to-peer file trading world to determine whether a file that's being traded is illegal or or, or legal under present copyright law. There would have to be a police system in place that may not be compatible with this idea of net neutrality it'd be interesting to see how they can reconcile those two impulses already in Europe we've talked about this on the show before Jim countries like uh, France and Sweden are essentially invading the privacy of users, saying, you know, if you do this sort of activity, we're going to cut you off from the Internet. Is this kind of system going to become in place in the United States if these net neutrality laws are put in place with these sort of caveats attached? It remains to be seen. I think it's going to be one of the most fascinating and contentious debates in Washington over the next couple of years.
0: Of love
1: This kind of love That is a song called This Kind of Love, which is the title track of Carly Simon's last album, released in 2008, kind of a Brazilian-tinged singer-songwriter effort by the woman who most famously gave us Your So Vain and other hits like that. Greg, it's interesting to us because it is the last piece of a story we covered from uh, beginning, middle to end. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that was looking as if it might be a viable alternative for artists, uh, established artists, to sell their music was to get in bed with Starbucks. You know, the coffee chain started a record label, Hear Music, signed some of the biggest names in music history, Paul McCartney, right? Mm -hmm. And was selling several releases exclusively through its stores. Carly Simon made a deal with them, was supposed to be paid $750,000 as an advance, recorded in an album and was not happy at all about the way Hear Music sold it and failed to deliver, she said, on promises it made, and then went out of business uh, shortly after her album was supposed to be out there getting pushed. She is suing Starbucks now for damages, substantial damages, a- as a high-powered lawyer, David Boyce. He's the man who sued mm-hmm. Microsoft. You know, what an, a tawdry way for this idea to end, uh, as Starbucks as an alternative music company.
2: Well, it's interesting because the company had success uh, with McCartney's uh, Memory Almost Full record. He was very pleased with the, with the marketing campaign behind that. The fact that he sold over 500,000 copies of that record earlier, they'd had a lot of success selling Ray Charles records. But then they signed artists like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and Carly Simon, and those sales didn't go nearly as well. And this idea of turning Starbucks into this sort of diversified store for coffee drinkers really didn't pan out, and they didn't give it much of a chance. I have to say, after a couple of years, they ended this idea, and and people like Carly Simon are royally ticked at them right now.
3: not between you and your ambition i am a poster girl with no poster i am 32 flavors and then some and i'm beyond your peripheral vision so you might want to turn your head. because someday you are gonna get hungry and eat most of the words you just
2: you're listening to Sound Opinions. That is 32 flavors from Annie DeFranco, one of the leading independent artists of the last 20 years, truly an independent artist, in, in a lot of ways setting the template for the peer-to-peer file-sharing world we live in now where the artist-to-fan communication is paramount. Ani was doing that uh, 20 years ago, basically when she started her own record label in Buffalo, New York, Righteous Babe Records, as an outlet for her own music, using it as a forum to put out her recorded music jumping into a beat-up car with her guitar and playing for anyone who would have her around the country, slowly building that touring base, putting out a record a year, now to the point where she can sell out shows at auditoriums of four to 5,000 people. A lot of artists we talked to today, Jim, turn to us and say, you know, I want to do it like Ani DeFranco did. Yeah. I want to own all my own master tapes. I want to run my own label. I don't want the man telling me what I can or can't do. I want to have that communication base that she has direct to fan. Greg, Ani is slowing down slightly these days. She is now
1: happily married and raising her daughter. But she's still running Righteous Babe. She was on tour. She was here in Chicago. And we had her by the studio for a chat and a live performance.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, He's Jim DiRigatis, and we're here in the studio with Annie DeFranco. Annie, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks. Hi. It's
2: great to have you here.
3: It's nice to be here.
2: You're sitting here with an acoustic guitar, unaccompanied otherwise, and uh, it's, it's given me flashbacks to seeing you perform in the early 90s. Oh, and Lordy. Back at that time. <laughs> pretty much the same were picture. Were we ever so young? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think your haircut was a little different back oh, then. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But uh, otherwise, pretty much the same kind of scenario. And you had already started your own label. Mm-hmm. You had already put out records at that point. You mm-hmm. were touring the country basically on your own. At 19 years old, you started mm-hmm. your label, mm-hmm. started putting out records the next year. You were a woman on a mission. Yeah. What was going on in your life that in 1989 you said, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own?
3: Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of got started early in life in general. I was living on my own when I was 15 and paying rent and uh, you know passing in the adult world so I had a little bit of that experience under my belt and had already formed a few opinions about things like corporate America and uh, my aversion to it you know Mm so When I started recording records and selling them at my gig and starting the the concept of what became Righteous Babe Records, my own label, it was was really about—it was not that I had a horror story, that I had been messed around by a label or had any bad experiences. It was that I didn't want to be— a part of that world, you know, just to have a career in music. So I was just making it up as I went along.
2: <laughs> That's pretty fascinating, though. I mean, it, this is Buffalo, New York, yeah, upstate New York, yeah. a, a part of the country. Center of ver- the universe. Very familiar with. <laughs> That's ne- not necessarily a center of, of culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to you in, in those years that you were, you were thinking along these lines?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I don't know that it's the most cosmopolitan city uh, out mm-hmm. there. It's a little rust belt yeah. town you know kind of evacuated but there is a lot of buffalo in me a lot of buffalo informs I think my my outlook you know I'm just a real kind of down-to-earth gal and sort of unpretentious in my approach to music and performance you know I just kind of walk up on stage and say whatever's on my mind for better or worse and that kind of carries over into my you know big business strategy too you know <laughs> just stick with it work your butt off Play gigs every night anywhere you can get them for about 10 years and then see what happens, If you, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. I keep quoting you every time people talk about, you know, what do I need to do to, you know, and, and you're, you come up constantly as sort of a role model. I want, mm-hmm. I want to own everything. I want to mm-hmm. do it on my mm-hmm. own. I turned that question back on you uh, years ago, and you said one word, patience. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I've grown my patience, you know, mm-hmm. as I got older. But I think what I did have in the beginning was just a lust for what I, did, for making music, you know, and and it was so exciting to me to play in a bar for five people, just especially if I could see their eyes and smell them, and you know that kind of making that connection was always very exciting to me. So, I, I wasn't sort of holding out for the rock star dream or waiting to be happy or fulfilled with my art. You know, I think what passed for patience in the beginning was just uh, sincerely being thrilled by. Um, whatever kind of performance or low, you know, um, obscure situation I was in.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you made reference to this being precocious and starting young. But mm-hmm. is this a true story or is this one of those apocryphal things that you were out there playing and, and getting paid to perform busking mm-hmm. at age nine?
3: Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was uh, making money for summer camp at the time. I really <laughs> wow. wanted to go to camp. And uh, so I was making money any way I could. And one of the ways was to set up at the market every Saturday and on the street – Nine years old, doing that. And then actually, when I was a teenager, I was working in bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some arrangements with some local Buffalo yeah. pubs and stuff. You know, I ran open mics. You know, I, wouldn't, I wasn't drinking. I was just Yeah, working. when you're
1: underage, they always tell you, you know, just say you wandered in accidentally from the restaurant, <laughs>
3: yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, now I imagine it's even harder, you know, to go and play music or see music in a place with alcohol because it's so locked down. But um, those days, it was a little looser.
1: But basically, you just weren't going to take anybody's answer that you couldn't make this a career.
3: Yeah, sure enough. Yeah, for me, people always, whatever, the word successful or something, they seem to have this kind of pie-in-the-sky definition for it. Like successful means you're on TV, on MTV or something right now. And for me, successful was I play music, I feed myself. Right. I pay my rent.
1: I don't have to work. Yeah, I was unquote. successful
3: when I was 18 and right. and and playing music uh for a living,
1: so to speak. But I think what Greg was getting at is what what were your models for that, uh, mm. Annie? You know, I mean, you're growing up in DC, you look at Fugazi. It's it's mm-hmm, obvious. You know, mm-hmm, growing up mm-hmm. in Chicago, you can look at, you know, mm-hmm. Steve Albini created mm-hmm. himself a niche outside the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Were you looking at anybody?
3: Well, sure. You know, in the folk music world, there's a whole national underground, international, yeah. really, of of song people. Pretty early on, I tapped into that community, and it made all the difference in the world for me. I started playing at folk festivals when I was a teenager, and that exposed me to a, a huge supportive audience that got me working uh, sooner rather than later. And also, there were many... Precedence for being independent. You know, lots of little labels, yeah. lots of people who infuse their music with a lot of politics and community and music as a social act and an organizational tool and all of that. You know, that was all around me.
1: Well, you want to play us a song before we, because we could just sure. chat all day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Let me see. Um, maybe I'll play you uh, a rant, as uh-huh. my folk singing and uh, somewhat mentor friend Utah Phillips would call it. This one goes out to him. I will not stand immersed In this ultra-violent curse I won't let you make a tool of me I will keep my mind and body free Bye-bye minutiae of the day-to-day drama I'm expanding exponentially I am consciousness without identity I am many things made of everything But I will not be your bankroll I won't idle in your drive-thru I won't watch your electric side show I got way better places to go I will maintain the truth I knew naturally as a child I won't forfeit my creativity world that's all laid out for me I'll look at everything around me and I will vow to bear in mind that all of this was just someone's idea it could just as well be mine I won't want you my
1: love a good rant <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's uh that and furthermore a, that is a heck of a song people who say uh protest songs aren't being written anymore that was all of this from the latest ani defranco studio record called red letter year boy you know when i when i listen to a song like that People are talking about this, this is the Happy Annie record. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, I know, I've heard and that then too. then there's that song.
3: Yeah, yeah, right? And and others, super capital P political stuff on that new record, but yeah. it's it's really my fault. We put out the press release for that record, and it said, Annie's happy, and it's a happy, happy, Ani happy, the happy <laughs> record. Yeah. So people picked up on the H word. Right.
1: For sure. No. Well, that doesn't preclude that you, you know, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm ranting. Amen, yeah. <laughs> there
0: you go.
1: <laughs> right, right. We'll continue our conversation with singer, songwriter, and ranter Ani DeFranco after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Dylan Does Christmas.
3: Just call me shameless. I can't even slow these down Let around, but I cannot top this. If I had any sense, I guess I'd fear this. I guess I'd keep it down, so no one would hear this. I guess I'd shut my mouth and rethink a minute. But I can't shut it now, cause there's something in it. We're in a room without a door. We drop.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you're listening to our conversation with musician Ani DeFranco. That was a little bit of Red Letter Year, the title song from her new album. And the record, like much of her work, is very political. She's speaking out against racism, sexism, homophobia, just to name a few issues. And so I asked Ani if she ever worried about being so outspoken. Has there ever been a moment in your life as a songwriter that Mm -hmm. you felt, you know what, I am putting too much, this is going to get misinterpreted, especially as a young woman touring the country by yourself, Mm -hmm. essentially, you could end up in some venues in some parts of the country where stuff like that isn't going to go over too well. We've asked Steve Earle this question, (laughs) you know, but he, you know, before Atkins, he was big and
1: burly and he could probably take most covers.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, last night, last night, I was playing, I, I stepped out on stage and in the front row was very many older people, elderly people. I don't know what if it was season ticket scenario or wh- how they ended up at my show, but I was I was like, whoa,
1: mm.
3: looking at my set list like, oh, okay, <laughs> here we go. Um, and it was great. It was terrific. I love playing to different kinds of people. And in the early days when I was a teenager and just starting to write songs, I had many moments of fear. You know, can I say this? Can I say that? And, oh, what if my mom comes to the show mm. and such? And and then my experience uh, took over. You know, I powered through those moments of fear early on. And overwhelmingly over the years, uh, what happens when you put yourself out there like that, your opinions, your perceptions, your experiences, is so many more people come up and say, me too. Oh, my goodness, thank you mm-hmm. for saying that. Then say shut up, go away, we can't take it, you Mm -hmm. know.
2: In terms of the progression, you know, and we're talking about performances here, those early shows where you're you're playing to strangers and you're trying to win that audience over, and then there was a progression where people were paying to see you, and, you know, they were coming by, you know, there's roughly 800,000 people coming to see you, and those shows, I mean, it was amazing, because you're up there just with that acoustic guitar, And you could hear a pin drop in there. I mean, it was just this reverential kind of hanging on every word vibe. And then, you know, seeing you progress to the 4,000 capacity theaters Mm -hmm. where people can be drinking a beer and having a conversation while you're singing. How did you sort of adapt to the fact that, you know, I am this bigger, more mainstream Mm -hmm. personality almost in spite of the way I've operated. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet you have this different kind of audience. How do you Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that?
3: Well, there was a little time period in there, probably late 90s, where I probably hit my peak of notoriety. You know, I was on the covers of whatever magazines. And mm. and I was this overnight success after, you know, yeah, good 15, 15 years. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and at that point, you know, the shows, I was sort of playing some arenas type venues. And the capacities got to nine, ten thousand 10,000 for yeah. a minute there. That was not great for me you know it's not good for doing subtle things for connecting in intimate ways you know stadium rock sounds like and works like stadium rock for a reason you know it's so to play to a room like that was sort of antithetical to my art as I got back down to the the smaller theaters I started to be able to do what I could what I do uh, better but I really luckily I did feel ready for all of those stages um the frantic, um, uh, exponential growth of, of my audience, and and also the what I'm still in, you know, the the slow retraction and decline, you know, back to sort of more of an essential core audience, not the hmm, what is this famous person yeah, about, right. um, peripheral people. But it was those, it was that 20 years of playing in bars. That that's why when Pete Young people come to me and say, how do I get on the bus with the curtains in the window and the big TV and the, you know, I, I think don't even, just how do you get the yeah. next gig and the next gig and the next gig? They always because,
1: ask the wrong question. They mm, want to ask about the tour and the bus. And it's yeah, like, you, you get, should be asking me how do I fill 200 people in yeah, this club?
3: Yeah, yeah. And all of that honing of your craft that is very unglamorous, uh, you know, as the years go by, is very, very useful, essential in the end.
2: Mm-hmm. Is the touring, I mean, that, that is so much a, part of the, of the folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Is that something you can envision yourself doing? But you're, you're now a mom, you're married, mm-hmm. you know, you've got this other life going on. Is it something that you even want to do as you move forward in your life?
3: I usually shy away from predicting the future, because if mm. I know anything, it's change happens. But I, I can pretty solidly say I want to do this, I want to be Pete Seeger, 90 years old, <laughs> rocking, rocking it. I think I'm gonna need to develop a dif- different pace. You know, I've been pretty f- frantic uh, most of my career, and now, like you say, I got a family and I got reasons to stay home. So I'm gonna just need to pace myself a little bit. But it's. Um, it's still really uh, there's there's nothing like it for me being out there being connected with people you mm-hmm. know having conversations with people in places and and i really would would not be the artist i am without it
1: could you at this point just sustain yourself on recorded music
3: i think it's it's really much harder now for like you say if you if you're not out there playing i mean again that's my mm-hmm. model and that's what i tell everybody even though they don't want to hear it um, you know, the whole infrastructure of the indie record stores and the indie radio and indie, the whole community, all the indie labels, like mm. that's just crumbled. Mm. So that's really, that's, uh, that's really tough. I think that what most artists are doing these days is advertisements, you know, mm. and I, I'm not well for that myself. I, I sort of drew that line in the sand a long time ago and decided I wasn't gonna use, allow any of my music to be used in advertisement. So It's been really hard for me lately because that's what people do other than movie and TV placement.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, you're here in performance mode. How about another song?
3: Sure. Let's see. Tell us what you're going to do. What am I going to do? I'm going to play a song uh, uh, off that last record as well. It's um, one I wrote after the birth of my daughter a (laughs) few years ago. Who's
1: what, uh, two and a half now? She's two and a half, Mm -hmm. yeah.
3: Picking myself apart. You'd think at my age I'd have thought of something better to do than make insecurity into a full-time job. Making insecurity into an art. And I fear my life will be over, and I will have never lived it unfettered. Always playing. do forget to have a good time Don't let the sellers of stuff Power enough to rob you of your grace Love is all over the place There's nothing wrong with your face Love is all over the place There's nothing wrong with your face
2: present infant from Annie. DeFranco. You're good,
3: you're good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm not he's got even... the, he's got Great the, the <laughs> cheat oh, sheet oh, go. But
2: good stuff on uh, mother's advice to her daughter. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting, I, just hearing you play that song, I, I'm I thinking back to those songs that you were writing when you were first starting out. And it almost seems like that's the kind of advice or you wish somebody had said that to you mm-hmm. when you were, when mm-hmm. you were younger. Any truth to that?
3: Yeah, a lot of what I write, most of what I write, I'm just writing to myself, really. Mm. And in that way, I've written myself into being, you know. And and I think a, a message that sort of comes through my words over and over in different songs in different ways is become yourself, trust yourself, love yourself, you know, respect yourself. And, and not only come up with your own answers, come up with your own questions, you <laughs> know. and mm-hmm. So in that way, it's... I'd like to think that my message is never do as I do or think as I think, but think as you think. Make mm. sure you're thinking as you
1: think. I mean, it's, as far as I'm concerned, the essential message of all great art. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know? um, there was a scare where you had tendinitis for a while. Yeah. It came on in, what, 2007, right? Yeah,
3: so, something like that. I
1: mean, because it, it has seemed as if you regularly played a city like Chicago two or three times mm-hmm. a year, right. every year, yeah. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um were you worried that you wouldn't be able? Because that's got to be a huge part of your income
3: mm-hmm. at this point. Yes, yes. More and more, as the record yeah. industry implodes around us, touring is my bread and butter, and uh, very scary. It was, it was horrible to be playing in pain every night, and to be, mm. to, you know, taking songs off the set lists that I just can't play, and to just be trying to get through an hour and a half, and then going and plunging my arms into ice, and you know, mm. it was. It was a real gauntlet for a while. And then I just, I had to stop. And, and for me, stopping means a lot of people lose their job. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very, it's sort of a subliminal pressure, uh, you know, when so many people's livelihoods are.
1: Because you're talking about your crew. You've got a crew My crew,
3: My crew. And even back at the home office, you know, the mm. label, if I'm not touring, you know, it's thing, everything slows down. And right. So that was, a, that was a tough decision. And I stayed home for nine months. I just didn't play guitar. And I thought I would heal. And then I went back to work nine months later and realized, no, uh, tendinitis is serious yeah. stuff, as all of us monkeys in the modern world know now yeah. with our computers and our gizmos, yeah. and it's affecting said, so many the of typing, us. said fading the typing, Greg and yeah. I do, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, so many of us know what tendinitis is about. And, um,
1: but you're not wearing a brace. I'm not now. And you're on the road.
3: Yep, so I'm back, and I'll tell you one word, one word that really turned the corner for me, acupuncture. Mm. Hmm. Huge. Uh, really has helped me a lot.
2: Well, it's great they found a solution because I think we need to talk about your guitar playing. You know, Mm -hmm. you're a shredder, you know? I mean, you could be, you're a cooler Ingwe Malmstein, you know, in your own Mm -hmm. way. I mean, but you're on acoustic and you play quote unquote folk music, and therefore you're never in that discussion about great Mm -hmm. guitar players. You know, it was always like, man, have you seen this person play guitar? It was like, Mm -hmm. when I I first saw you play, it was like two, I'm, I'm hearing two or three guitar players. What motivated you, first of all, to pick up a guitar, and then how did you learn to play as you do?
3: Uh, you know, I think um, it was sort of an intuitive choice when I was nine. Um, you know, I just think I I wanted to write songs, and, you know, a guitar is a very good instrument to accompany the voice. And I think that my, my sort of style was really kind of honed almost as a survival skill. Years of playing solo in a bar where... Nobody's really interested in the little girl in the corner pouring her heart out. You know, everybody's got their business to take care of. So, you know, all of that, like, you know, over here, juxtaposing loud with silence Mm. makes somebody's talking over you. Suddenly their words are hanging in the air yeah. and they shut up and you know all of that kind of percussive be your own band mm. attract attention kind of guitar style I, I I, think just I honed in bars over the years
1: born True. out of necessity like yeah, the great yeah. blues players who <laughs> learned to innovate you know there was a beer bottle there I'm uh-huh, going to put it against right. the guitar there's a slide yeah, right. do you want to play another tune for us
3: sure let me play you a brand new song well it's yeah there you go brand new as in uh, written on November 5th cool of 2008 the victory was ours and you were the first to say it never known so many people donate time to a campaign and when you were elected there was a global wave of joy who knew a world gone mad could still go sane And we poured into the streets, and we danced, and we cheered. And the neighborhood was a neighborhood like it hadn't been in years. All eyes meeting, filled with tears. Yes, we prayed you were coming, and then we saw you were here. You are black, you are white, you are red, you are blue. You are green and orange with a purple and yellow hue. You've risen like a phoenix from each flame that they threw. You've been everything that we asked of you. President Obama, it's an honor just to say it. I I used to hide my passport, now I want to display it. Thank you for our democracy, through you is resurrected. Thank you for our basic decency, in you is reflected. Thank you America, for being more than I expected. Oh Yes we can, yes we can, yes we can, yes we can. Can. Oh, yes, we can. 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 And President Obama, you do not have to be perfect trust that you are a public servant, steady as Abraham Lincoln, ready as Martin Luther King. That's the spirit that you bring. And we vow to uphold you through these tricky times, keep you safe in our hearts and informed with our minds. And we will uphold each other. We won't divide and attack. There is no going back. There is no going back. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. 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 Yes, we can.
1: to say it. Wow. Great stuff. Yes We Can, is that the name yeah, of it?
3: Uh, it's called November 5th, 2008. November 5th,
1: 2008, the yeah. day it was written. Yeah. Annie, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. It's been a complete
2: pleasure.
3: Thank you. Likewise.
2: To listen to Ani's entire live performance in our studio, visit soundopinions.org. And to comment on our conversation or share any of your critical opinions on the air, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of the new holiday album from Bob Dylan and my Desert Island jukebox pick.
3: Summon the courage to put down your landing
1: Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Mr. Cott and I are smiling widely because that voice can only belong (laughs) to one person on planet Earth. That, of course, is Bob Dylan. Yeah, you heard it right. Santa Claus comes tonight. Santa Claus comes to town. It's from his new Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart. Um, Greg, after 34 studio albums, countless tours unbelievable live documents of 50 years on the road basically <laughs> you would think there is very little that robert Allen zimmerman of duluth minnesota could do to surprise anyone anymore He just found something, okay? (laughs) I want to point out something about Bob Dylan, which is one of my favorite things about an artist I love and have been studying essentially my entire music listening life. He has a warped and twisted, bizarre and surrealistic sense of humor. We talked at great length when he wrote the first volume of his autobiography, which has amazing chestnuts like him saying the biggest artistic inspirations in his life were the old-time wrestler Gorgeous George (laughs) and ukulele strumming time. Tiny Tim. When you understand that Dylan just likes to crack wise and really play with his image as the self-important voice of a generation, right. you begin to understand things like Dylan popping up in a Victoria's Secret commercial <laughs> a few years ago. I give you that for context because no one expected him to go into the studio with his touring band and a few close friends like David Hidalgo, the accordion player from Los Lobos, who really was the star of Dylan's last studio album, mm-hmm. and turn out a collection of mostly holiday chestnuts the most tried and true of christmas songs you know i'm talking hark the herald angels sing and little drummer boy what is this about well all the money from copies of this record that are being sold are going to be donated to charities devoted to easing world hunger a noble idea but we are going to have to review this as critics as art so i'm going to play a song for you and we'll come back and give our opinions about dylan's new christmas in the heart This is O Come All Ye Faithful, aka Adeste Fidelis, with one of the most fascinating (laughs) Latin pronunciations I've ever heard by Bob Dylan on Sound
0: Opinions. Now to
2: Oh, come all ye faithful. Yes, that was Bob (laughs) Dylan. The first ever Bob Dylan Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart. Wow. You know, I want to preface all my remarks, Jim, by just uh, declaring yet again that I think (laughs) Bob Dylan is the most important artist of the last 50 years. I I will concur, Uh, yes. You know, what Picasso was to painting, Bob Dylan is to rock and roll. An American living treasure. Absolutely. And everything he puts out is at least worth hearing at least paying attention to until now, (laughs) however however at the risk of sounding like ebenezer Cott, yeah (laughs) the grinch who stole christmas um you know i gotta say and, and and noble charities i mean three charities all the profits from this record bob's heart was in the right place however the execution of this record is 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 abysmal this is this is a travesty in a lot of ways i i can't begin to think why Dylan, in making a Christmas album, would want to make a, a Christmas record modeled after one of those that the Ray of singers made yeah. back in my grandparents' record collection. Or the King Family Singers. Remember them? The King Show on,
1: on Christmas yeah. every
2: year? It reminds me of that kind of you know, style of crooning. Obviously, Dylan is, is not a crooner, never really was. He's attempting to croon these uh, traditional Christmas ballads, being propped up by these middle-brow choirs in the middle of these songs, it is it is almost a parody, like he's almost uh, tongue-in-cheek about it. As you said, he has a well-earned reputation for subtle satire in some of his music, and I'm wondering if there's a bit of this in that, or if this is just a sort of a uh, misguided attempt to do a traditional Christmas album, because that's what he thinks the audience that is buying well, a charity album expects the last three albums uh, by Dylan that you and I
1: have reviewed. We have been fighting because he he does have this fondness for the schlockiest kind yeah. of late forties, early fifties, pre rock and roll mainstream pop. Right. I'm talking like how much is that doggy in the window? He likes that. He was a kid listening to that on the radio growing up in Duluth, and he's been throwing in a couple of songs on each of the last couple of albums in that style, which is abysmal. I think you know it's not folk, it's not blues, it's not rock, it's not Dylan music, and he thinks he can sing it, although he cannot sing, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things we love about him. Yeah. He used to be a powerful croak, is now a raspy wheeze. Above and beyond the fact that he can't sing, and the arrangements are awful, uh, there is his delivery, Greg. You know, uh, the chorus coos angelically. In the meadow we can build a snowman, and then Bob comes in. Until the other kids are knocking down. And then the other kids will knock him down. <laughs> and it's like, he's like the the horrible alcoholic black sheep of the family come to Christmas dinner uninvited who says all of inappropriate things, knocks things over, breaks people's presents, pinches everybody's bums, <laughs> right? And you just want to throw them out. And it's like, it is so inappropriate for Christmas. I know it's for charity make a donation to public radio or to any charity <laughs> feel good about yourself save yourself the torture of listening to this album which is truly one of the worst albums ever made i'm talking like william shatner and leonard nimoy doing those records in the 60s where they tried to be pop
2: stars yeah those are less painful yeah than this dylan album
1: it is a double trash it
2: you're you're making it sound almost entertaining like in this it's so bad it's good category oh lord but... no i didn't mean to do that <laughs> but it is a trash it <laughs>
0: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just the cast away, island lost the sea, oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Sandy far from home. Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out so of far from home. Sandy, yeah, mama. my
1: Ah, yes, we love that introduction. It means that whenever possible here on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I like to take a trip to the proverbial desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without today. Mr. Cott, what have you got?
2: Well, Jim, uh, reviewing Dylan's first-ever Christmas album put me in the mood, a little prematurely, perhaps, for the holidays, but... uh, there are very few Christmas albums I actually like and uh, even fewer that I can play year-round. And, and the record I'm going to highlight today is one of those records that I truly you, you know believe. know it's October, right? Yes, yes, indeed. But I, I'm playing this record with the full knowledge that it, it, is, it is premature, but at the same time... I believe it is a truly great record and a record that is, uh, withstands any season. Well, that says
1: something, because when you're talking about Christmas music, you have a canon not of like 50 years, like yeah. rock and roll, but of like four or five centuries. Right. So it's really got to be good to measure
2: up. Absolutely, and I, I think this record does does the trick. It's uh, by Lowe. Uh, it was a, a little EP released in 1999 by this coincidentally enough, from uh, northern Minnesota, much like Mr. Dillon himself, a trio led by a couple, Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker. They are are devout Christians. They don't make a big deal about it in their music, but it certainly seeps through. And again, in in this record, you can hear the influence of that faith and that culture that they grew up in. More more than any kind of religious message, I think what's behind this record is the sense of... uh, of slow-paced deliberation and and a sense of solitude, like it was created under a blanket of snow that informs their best music. I think this band has made a number of wonderful records, and I'll put this at the very top of the scale. The song I'm going to play is called Long Way Around the Sea, and it it basically tells the biblical tale of the three magi coming to visit uh, the baby Jesus when he was born in a manger in these most destitute circumstances in Bethlehem and it's a beautiful story and it and it gets to the essence of why we celebrate this holiday every year it cuts away all the business about sleigh rides and christmas trees and bows and gifts and and really gets down to the essence of who this person was and why do we celebrate this holiday and it does it in just a beautiful manner not only the solitude that i was talking about but there's sort of a hovering anxiety in the music as well that i think speaks to how do we observe this tradition do we really know what it means and are we living up to its ideals uh, today it makes me think and and it's a beautiful piece of music by low a long way around the sea on sound opinions
0: come so far, we follow the star, and heard, said bring me word, take the Son of God descends to earth, take
1: That is low, long way around the sea. Mr. Cott's desert island jukebox pick. A fine one it is, Greg. And also a reminder that that area of the world is is far from peaceful right now. A
2: haunting thing. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to sample a little bit of the French invasion. Phoenix has had one of the great success stories of the year, and we had him in the studio for an interview and a live performance. Looking forward to it. Meanwhile, for this week's show, Mary Gaffney
1: recorded Ani DeFranco for us. The show was produced by our hardworking and devoted team of Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori, Southside, Malatia, a man who knows the correct Latin pronunciation, and it ain't adore a moose.
2: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: New messages.
4: Hey guys, this is Tim from Chicago. I wanted to bring up another weird instrument. And that's that thing that the 13th floor elevators used. You know, that thing that kind of goes like... Which I believe to be a jug, an electric jug. And I've also heard rumors that that is what they kept their uh, marijuana stash in. You guys ever do a, another show like this? I want to know about that. Hey. Hey guys, this is Rob in Chicago. Just got a done listening to your Weird Instruments podcast, and I had my five-month-old son on my lap, and he was being kind of fussy, and I didn't really know what to do. And then the Mercury Rev song came on with the singing saw, and uh, within 30 seconds, I looked down, he was cold asleep, so I just want to thank you for giving me another song to put on his iPod in the nursery that uh, will go between Bach and uh, Mozart, so thanks a lot. Hey, guys, uh, John Allure from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, phoning about your Muse show. Look, you had me with the weird instrument stuff. I, I, I totally almost cried when I heard the back song. But your review of Muse, come on, guys. This is a great, great band with great ambition. And, you know, and to slag them for not having a sense of humor. What, sense of humor like Queen Head on Fat Bottom Girls? Give me a break sense of humor like Queen had on Ogre Battle. Give me a break, what are you talking about? I love them for quoting that band. They're a great and refreshing alternative to, to all of the sort of grunge stuff that you guys love. So for you guys to just dismiss it with, without any consideration is, is too much. And there's many Americans in this country who love Muse, who, who appreciate a drummer like, uh, like Dominic, uh, we we haven't heard anything like that in quite some time and I totally disagree with your review. Thank you Hello, this is Simon Lobdell from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. I just wanted to say I love your review of Muse today. Um, I, I could not agree more. I had an ex girlfriend who just thought I was brainless uh, and had no taste because the closest thing I could get to enjoying Muse was listening to the killers to drown them out. We are uh, we must be in the same wavelength here because uh, I really appreciated that. So, you guys the good work. I love it.